we are going to be starting this series. The, it's called Alpha and Omega, God from Beginning to End. Uh, we're not starting at the end, uh, or we're not starting at the beginning, we're starting at the end that's going to send us back to the beginning. Uh, so I would just encourage you, go ahead and, and be getting set in place. We're going to be reading from three passages in Revelation today. Revelation 1, 8, then chapter 21, verses 5 through 8, and then chapter 22, verses 12 through 13. They, I think those, they, if they're not up there, may, may, well, well, you'll see them on the screen, but I would encourage you, have your Bible open so that you can turn to those and read along and see those words in the text so that you can go back and see them again later and think on them and contemplate uh, what they're about. But, but as you're just thinking about and I want to set the tone before we jump in and read this. I want to set the tone for what this series really is about, where it started and why I think it's so, so important for us as a church. And, and really, I think even broader than our local congregation, it's something that the, the message that I think we're going to hear or I intend to see expressed over and over through this is just us getting to see God. The Bible demonstrates clearly that the, the world, the flesh, and the devil have an, an, an overwhelming and an incredible influence on, on every person they, that, that has ever lived. It, it is this, it's this crazy influence that, that exists in, in the world because of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The, the, the power of that influence is, is, is staggering. In fact, the, the, the scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, indicates that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, right? We're going to read this passage again in just a little bit, but in which we once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is now at work in the sense of disobedience, and, and the passions of our flesh. There's these three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that, that just overwhelming, that, that the language indicates that outside of Christ we are trapped in we are enslaved to we have no power to overcome or to 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 ignore or do something else other than their influence but even for the christian for the one who's been made alive by god for the one who trusts in jesus as lord for the one who professes that god is god and we are his creation for the one that recognizes the lord's authority and seeks to live in accordance with it for this person even for us the world, the flesh, and the devil remain a powerful and oftentimes overwhelming influence. We're no longer in bondage to them. We have another hope. We have another way. But we can be, that, that they can be quite a nuisance to us. I just want to think about some of the ways that that happens. By, by, the, by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are often led to live more in fear of man than in faith toward God. Just think about it. Because of their influence, we, we can often act offensively towards God because we're so concerned about offending another person. Right? Are, are we trusting God for truth and grace? Or are we trusting in our ability to not be offensive to maintain relationship and connection? By their influence, by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're often led to believe that God meets us in our sin, and because he does, we can continue living in that sin. You've heard people in the church, within the church, just, oh, well, this, I'm just a sinner, and just use that as the excuse to continue on sinning. I mean, it's Paul who said, don't, don't use grace as an excuse, <laughs> that grace may abound, you know, I'll just sin more so that grace abounds more. 
He says, absolutely not. Because of their influence, because of the influence of the world, the flesh and the devil, there's many traditions, many churches that are redefining what God considers or calls sin and what isn't. For, for years, mainline denominations, and we could, we could discuss whether or not they're actually within the Christian tradition or not. That's another conversation for another day. But they stand as representatives in the world around us as, as Christian. They've been redefining biblical teaching on marriage, sexual ethics, what, what's acceptable to God, what's not acceptable to God. Living according to their own perspectives and their own views on what's right and wrong. Because they've been so heavily influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil. By the, by, by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're often led to hope or to seek solutions to the problems that we face in, in the world in some false gospel or false religion. I think this has plagued us terribly over the last two and a half years. There's the prosperity gospel that's actually seeped into every other gospel because it's been so prominent in America because we're such an affluent people we think God loves us and has blessed us because we're successful, according to the terms of American success. Which means that if you're not successful, God must not love you. That's a lie of the devil. His love was proven for us on the cross of Jesus Christ, never to be questioned, never needed to be proved any further. There's the prosperity gospel that, that, that says, if, if I believe enough, if it's, it's all about me believing, if I believe enough, then, 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 then I'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's all about me. The, pro, the, the, the poverty gospel, the other end of that, is, is the poverty gospel that, that you're really more righteous if you divest yourself of stuff. So, so you come in here, and, and, and not necessarily in here, but, but you, you come in among God's people, and, 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 and you, you just flaunt the fact that, that you give everything away, right? That you don't you divide, divest yourself of all stuff. I don't own a thing. I'm homeless in the name of Jesus, and I'm more loved because of it. That's, that's a lie. There's the, 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 the gospel of social justice that, that we can, in some way, save people by feeding the poor, uh, um, Serving the downtrodden and being merciful to the oppressed. Don't hear me saying that those are bad things to do as Christians. But they are an expression of the gospel, not the gospel. And there's whole churches and denominations that are built on this as the message that you're only doing Christ's work if you're doing these things. It's a false gospel. The world has made us believe that. The, the, the flesh, the desire to be accepted has made us believe that. The devil has influenced that. The, 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 the false gospel, the false religion of politics and government, as if we get the right government in place, then suddenly we've won, the, we've won our nation. Probably most of the people sitting in this room would lean conservative. I, I, I believe that's true. Uh, I'm conservative. I would consider myself politically, I'd consider myself constitutionally conservative. And I vote that way. And there's a single issue for me that, that I won't, if, if, if a person will not support or if, if a person will not stand for at least a, a pro-life position, I, I won't even consider casting a vote for them. 
But by electing conservative Republican people, we have not saved, nor will we ever save America. We might just make Americans more comfortable as they make their way to hell. It could be that the season we're in is going to be used of God. This chaos will help people see their absolute need for him. I don't want to suffer any more than you do. I don't want people to suffer any more than you do. I don't enjoy inflation. I don't give, enjoy giving my money to taxes. I don't enjoy paying more for gas. I don't enjoy, but who's to blame for that? It's not just Biden. There's a whole list of things. It's just nice to be able to blame a guy. But if you're a supporter of Biden and you think that his, his way of moving more social and, and providing big government that provides big systems, that won't save America. Only Jesus Christ can do that. In fact, it's by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil that I believe that the church has been made to believe that it's our mission to get the right political uh, people in power. The mission of the church is go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Right? And I am with you to the end of the age. That's the mission he gave us. Now, can that be expressed in political views? And can that be expressed in our vote? And can that be? Absolutely. Please, let it, please, please make your vote from these perspectives. But it is a false gospel to think that they save anybody. It's a false gospel to think that, that there is any hope outside of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection. It's a false religion to practice that, that any of our works make us more acceptable or more loving or more, more, more um, able to enjoy him than he has made a way for us to enjoy. It is wrong. And, 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 and then we get into the, to the ideas of, well, wait a minute. I, I, I devote myself to all this stuff. I, I devote my, my, my life and my efforts and my money and my time and my treasure, my talents and all these things. I, I give myself to these things. And what we find is... That just because we devote, them, devote ourselves to them, don't make them God and don't make them salvation and don't make them, they might just be influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We need to be careful. By the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're often led to hope, to, to lose hope and feel anxious, depressed, and even feel despair when things don't go our way. Now, I'm having a conversation this week. I've actually had this conversation a lot in the last several weeks, um, but just happened the other day. I was having this conversation with, with this couple, and, and the, the, the wife was telling me just how the Lord had grown her in life and how in the beginning of, in the beginning of, her, of her being saved, she wrestled with knowing God's goodness even in the hardship, but then in maturing, she questioned less. In the face of hardship and difficulty and uncertainty and being out of control, she was less prone to doubt his goodness. But think about it. Think about, the, think about the thoughts that immediately enter our mind when hardship, when things don't go our way. Has God forgotten me? Did I do something? What did I do to deserve this? Why, did he, why, why, why me, God? 
That's the, the influence, the world, the flesh, and the devil. By the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're often robbed of his, the joy of his salvation, the peace that he provides, that passes understanding, and the grateful hearts for grace that he has lavished upon us. And brothers and sisters, we don't have to be. We do not have to be. There is another way. We are not enslaved to the, to the influence. We are not bound to the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are not left dead in them. There's another way. This is God's world. We are his people, and he is our God. And we don't have to be swayed by that influence any longer. And we can live like it. Imagine trying to live in a world that belongs to God without knowing that God. J.I. Packer actually addresses that directly in his book, his, his seminal work, Knowing God. He, he addresses that issue directly, and, and I just thought I'd share this with you. He writes, knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an, as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, to put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England, to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. In the next chapter, he goes on to make the point even further. There is no peace like the peace of, whose minds, of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God. God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life through death and on Forever. So here we are coming out of this craziest season that, 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 that maybe most of us is most confounding and confusing and chaotic season that maybe most of us have ever known. Because if you think about what's happened in the, in the last 30, 40, 50 years, the, the time where most of us have been alive, we've had it pretty easy. I mean, we wake up, we turn on the light and the light shines and we walk to the faucet and push the handle up or turn the knobs, whatever, I don't know what setup you got, but the water usually runs, and it's clear, right? There's not bugs floating in it. They're not, it's not muddy looking. It's not, it's not going to make us sick for most of us. We, we've had it pretty good. But these last two and a half years, we've been faced with social, political, health, all these, these, these trials and these challenges and and it's just added to the chaos and the confusion how differently could we have endured it. I'm thankful for this church because I think we did okay. But how differently could we have endured it if instead of looking to the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we just sat down and, and were still because we know God. It's out of that and watching and praying and pleading with the Lord, how do we go forward? How do we, how do we move forward? It's out of that that this sermon series was birthed. I studied with my mom and my sister a year ago. I studied Revelation, and then we began uh, uh, several, uh, eight, seven, eight months ago, maybe a little longer. We started into Genesis. We didn't get very far, but I began to see the, the bookends of the Bible. And I realized in the middle of all of that, God is still God. 
and it changed everything for me. I still want things in the world. I still want things to go a certain way politically. I still want... But I know the God who is. And I want to remind you, you know the God who is. You know the God who owns and rules and reigns in this world. And the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, they have no power over us. They can merely be a nuisance. So over the next however long, it's going to take us seven weeks to get through this first portion God creates. And we're going to move to God covenants. Then we're going to move to God commands. And then we're going to move to God commissions. And there's several sections we're going to work through. It may take us about a year, maybe take us a year and a half. But by the time we're done, we will work from beginning to end. We will have heard from the prophets. We have seen what God's been about doing all along. And my hope is that you will find peace that passes understanding, that you will know the joy of his salvation. And then when the influence begins to just pull at your attention, when, when, when that little voice in your head begins speaking, that you're able to say, no, no, that's not true because I know God. I know the God who is, and I am his. So that's what we're doing. That's where we're headed. And we start today by starting at the back of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, beginning reading in 8. We're going to skip over to Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 through 8, and then read Revelation 22, 12 through 13. We'll pray, and then we'll dig in. So let's do that now. Revelation 1, 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Skipping over to Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8. And he who is seated on the throne and seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. Does that sound familiar? It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Ooh, man, this is big. All liars, their portion will be held in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second. Death, and then skipping to chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Let's pray. Father, help us now, please, that we would be able to set aside these influences, these, these perspectives, these challenges to our faith, to these 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 self-centered, worldly, and even evil influences that that challenge us to look to something or someone other than you. Help us, I pray, in this season, in this series, but help us in this moment now to know you, God. To just be still. Be at your feet be encouraged, strengthened, to be helped, to be grown and shaped to the likeness of your Son, because we know you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God is 
always, or I'm sorry, our God is, always has been, and always will be the true and living God. He is God from eternity to eternity and at every point in between. I think, I think you can easily connect that and hear that as, as we read those verses over and over. He's emphasizing the reality. And this isn't someone writing about God. These are God's words being recorded by John. God, God didn't have to become God. He didn't have to grow or transition in power from, from some lesser thing. You, you likely heard, uh, I think it was just this last week, that Queen Elizabeth died. No, we don't, fo- well, some people follow her here, but, but it's not as big a thing. But, but Queen Elizabeth, in case you didn't know, Queen Elizabeth of the UK, she, she died this week. And, and the reality is, is that immediately upon her death, the, the, the question is, well, who's going to follow her? Well, Prince Charles, if you know anything about the way their line works, Prince Charles is their eldest son, and he immediately begins, even though his coronation has not been, has not actually happened, he's already being called King Charles III. That sounds weird because we've always known him as Prince Charles, but upon her death, he became something he wasn't. He moved from being a prince to being a king. This is not the same as God. God has always been God. He didn't have to become God. He didn't have to achieve things and and be more godly. He has always been God, going all the way back to eternity past, all the way into the future. Uh, He is always going to be God. Before the first tick-tock of the clock, to the end of days here on this old earth, even to the days that will come, he will always be God. We won't get to the end of those days and suddenly God's going to be unseated. We, we won't get to the events of Revelation in the end and, and find out that God has actually lost. He is always going to be God. He will remain God. We won't find that enemies are able to overthrow him, nor will he pass off his godness to some other being so that they can be God. All the way into eternity future. He will always be God. When the song, when the old song, you know the song. You're like, well, I don't know if I know the song. You haven't said it yet. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Now, I think the point of that verse focuses on the eternality of our life in his presence. But the eternality of our life in his presence only matters because God remains God. That verse of that song really is meaningless if God quits being God, right? Because we can't be sure of anything at that point. But God is now, God always will be God, and he is. He has always been God. He is the God, the only God, the only true and living God. It's, it's the, it's, he is the God that we have addressed in the Psalms as we studied them this summer. I don't know if you remember all the Psalms that we studied this summer, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but the, the God of Psalm 2, who the nations rage against, and, and he has said in response to that, I have seated my king on Zion. The, the God of Psalm 51, whose sins whose who David's sins were ultimately the greatest offense against. The, the Lord, the God of Psalm 63 that Bob just preached, Pastor Bob just preached this last week, that the depth of our desire is really about and will only ever be satisfied by him. Our soul thirsts for him. We might try to satisfy it with a lot of other things. But our soul thirsts for him. And that we don't feel satisfied because we don't have all of him. 
That's the God of Psalm 63, the God of, of Psalm 139 who knits us together in our mother's wombs and who knows all the days of our life before one of them exists. That is the God who has always been, will always be, and is right now. He is the God that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 1 who made himself known to all people so that, such that, that his eternal attributes, his divine nature has been clearly perceived since the, since the beginning of the world, since the creation of the world so that no one will have an excuse this is this God. This is the God that we're talking about in, in, in Revelation. He is this God. He is the one. <laughs> he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the God from beginning to end. God from eternity to eternity. God, it, he, he isn't, um, he is God right now at this very moment in history. He didn't lose control the last two and a half years, three years. He didn't, he didn't suddenly cease to be God. He didn't, he didn't step back a little bit and quit working. He didn't, he didn't give up his Godhood. The reality is, is that he might just be being God and expecting us to be his creation and let him keep being God and do what he knows is best and right and, and expect us to trust him. So God isn't God today, right now, in this very moment, because we recognize it or we give permission to him for it. He isn't God because we say he's God. He isn't God because of who we are. He is God because of who he is. And, and this is his testimony about himself from these verses. He is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter of the Greek First and last letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. It's the, the idea is that he is the all-encompassing God, who, the, the God who is, who was, and who is to come, present, past, and future. The beginning and the end, source and completion. I'm the one who started it, and I'm the one who finishes it. First and last, before it started, something had to be. I'm there, he says. I'm the first, and I'm the last. When it ends, I'll still be there, he says. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And you can, you can hear the first and last. It's, it's so powerful because this isn't something he decided to say at the end. This is something he's always been saying. The prophet Isaiah writing early on. I don't think these verses are on the screen behind me, but you can note them, jot them down. Isaiah 41.4 says this. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. He's the one that does that. He's the one who calls people out of the generations. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. The intent is not simply to show that God is God at one time and then another. The, the, the idea here is that, that he's, he, he's showing himself God of all time. So, so there's a, it's a rhetorical device called a merism, and I just learned this, and, and I've never heard of it until studying this, these passages, and then you're going to see it again in Genesis when we go there next week. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy to me that there's so many parallels, but anyway, there's a, it's called a merism, and what that means is M-E-R-I-S-M. -E I might be saying it wrong, but that's how I've said it, so that's how you can say it too, merism. Am I right or wrong? Okay, well, so, so she's, my, she's my grammar person, so that's why I was looking to faith. I, I, anyway, nonetheless, the idea here is that, it, let, me, let me illustrate it. So when somebody says that I've searched high and low, what does it mean? You can talk back. I've searched everywhere. 
There's no place I haven't looked. I've searched high and low. The idea is I didn't just search low and then high. I searched at all the places in between. When he says I'm the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, what he's saying is I'm the God of all of it. There's not a point in history. There's not a time. There's not a circumstance. There's not an event. There's not a person who he hasn't been God to. He has always been. He, he will always be. And he is God right now. Every point of history, he has always been from eternity to eternity. He is, he was, and he will be the past, present, and the future. The idea here is just trying to, trying to demonstrate to everyone, everyone, he is God. There's never been, nor will there ever be a time when that isn't true. He is God, the Almighty. That's a big word. Almighty. Again, all, I, even just thinking of it in English terms, you're thinking, oh man, that's He's powerful. But the Greek word is pantokrator, and it means rules over all. There's, there's no higher authority, no higher power. You put this together with the Alpha and the Omega, the, the idea becomes he is the sovereign God who rules with all authority and rules with all power. There's not an event that he hasn't allowed or an event that he hasn't caused. Every moment in history, every circumstance that has ever been has been because he either caused it to happen or he allowed it happened because it was going to work within his good purpose. That's hard to accept. But we're not God. Are we? No. The passages, a passage that was brought to mind recently is I was, I was spending time with dad just before he passed away. It was the first Bible verse I'd heard him quote in Year, a long time, years, but he re- referenced Romans 8 where he talks about that God brings good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good, he said. If God isn't this God, the God of revelation that we're talking about today, then that can't possibly be true. But God brings good even out of the most evil things. He, he brings good out of the hardest things. And sometimes, as we're, as we're going to see, this is hard for people to, gather, to, to deal with, but sometimes God is the author of the chaos that leads us to the cosmos. He's the one who causes the problem so he can lead us through the problem so that he can show us on the other side he is God. The Almighty, the Pantocrator, the one who rules over all with all power. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the Almighty, and He is coming. We see that in verses 22, uh, tw- chapter 22, verse 12. He is coming. It's actually Jesus who is saying those words and not God. There's a general reference to God in the first two uh, statements, but this last one, this third one in chapter 22, is, is a statement of Jesus. And, and, and here's, here's what I think is, is, is being said. Though he's always been God, and he's never abandoned the world, there's never been a moment he's not been God of the world and God to every person, whether they admitted it, whether they professed it, whether they recognized it or not, didn't matter. He was always God. That's always been true. There is a way in which we haven't always experienced the fullness of his godhood. Right, right now, we experience God by faith, not by sight. We see through a dark glass. Paul tells us of a time that's coming that we will see uh, as, uh, without that veil, with, with the veil being pulled back. 
that there's coming a time when we will be in his presence in a way that we are not today. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming. I'm on my way. I am going to be there so that you can experience the fullness of God. I want to make a note here about this being Jesus because those previous two statements being God, this is a a beautiful illustration of the divinity of, of our Savior. God, the triune God, didn't just send a representative. He sent his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity. And when you consider that, that, that though the Father and the Son and the Spirit are eternally distinct persons, they are one God, and God came to save us. And the God who's professing this in chapter 21 that says, I am the Alpha and Omega, I'm making all things new, this is God and the Savior is there. And the God at the beginning in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, it, 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 it may encompass the fullness of God, but here we see clearly our Savior is God. Right? So, so here it is. He, his, our God is um, always has been, always will be. He is right now. He's the God from eternity to eternity and every point in between. Our God is God from eternity to eternity and at every point in between so we can be sure he will finish all he has begun. Let me just talk to you about this sureness, this certainty. I don't think, and I'm guilty of this, so I'm I'm not just pointing a finger. Don't hear me just pointing a finger. I don't think the church lives this way often enough. We can be certain. Now, when we talk about hope, we talk about it oftentimes in a, in, a, in a wishful thought kind of way, like, I hope this thing happens. But the Bible never uses, never translates that word hope as, as some wishful thought. It's always a confident expectation. It's a future faith. It's a certainty in what is to come. And so when I say we can be sure, I'm saying we can be certain. We can have hope. We can have faith that he will finish all he has begun. Because he is the God who started, we can be sure he's the God who finishes. Because he's the God of the beginning, we can sh- be sure he's the God of the end. This is his profession of himself. This is his, 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 his expression, his, his testimony of his own identity. So brother and sister, we don't have to be anxious while the rest of the world assumes everything is spinning out of control. We don't have to run around as if we're chickens with our head cut off or the sky is falling because our God is still God. Right? Our God will always be God. There's never a point in history he wasn't God. We don't, have to, to, we, we don't even have to do it for him. I think this is a, a, a misunderstanding. It happens today a lot of times that we're trying to force our ideas. We're trying to force our positions. We're trying to demand of God to do a certain thing in response to our prayers. We're trying to be God for him. We're trying to accomplish God's will for him. We don't have to be God. He's God. Let him be God. And be sure and certain that he is going to continue being God and doing all that he knows is right and good. And he is going to get to the end and he is going to have all of his people with him. You will not be lost. You will not be overlooked. You will not be left. You will not be forsaken. You will not be or experience or find some place that you exist in which he isn't God. To us, through our Savior, he is a good father. We get to play a part in his plan. We have a responsibility. Don't, 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 don't think that, oh, now we just sit down. We, we have a mission to accomplish, but whose mission is it? Who defines it? He does. His plan is not for us to take over and take control and make things the way we want them. His plan, his mission for us, is the mission assigned to us, 
And we trust him and express our faith in him as we walk and live in that mission. We can live just as he's called us to because he is God, enduring faithfully as his disciples, making disciples that endure faithfully alongside us, baptizing those disciples that are professing their faith in them and maturing those disciples to see them grow up and make more disciples. That we can be certain, we can be sure that he is always going to be God. He will always, he will complete all he has started. He is, this is a quote from Thomas Schreiner. Thomas Schreiner is a a, a pastor, a theologian. He's a a professor at the Southern Southern Baptist Seminary. I can't remember exactly. Southern Seminary, it's a Southern Baptist Seminary. He writes this in, in, in his commentary on this passage. He writes, he is mighty God in every moment faced by those who belong to him. Think about that. He is mighty God in every moment faced by those who belong to him. There's never been a moment that you've been alive that he hasn't been mighty God. There's never been a circumstance in which he wasn't already mighty God. There was never a time he was not supreme Lord over all, and there is no chance that history will spin out of control. This is the certainty that all of us can live with. And, 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 and then he shows us, just, just in a glimpse, in a summary of, of some of the things that he's doing in these passages that we can be certain come to be. Creation will end in new creation. This is verse, chapter 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now we'll look more at the creation side of things in the weeks to come. That's where we're going to jump off into next week. But from the moment that God set time ticking, the moment that he said, let there be light, and he separated the light from the darkness, and the first day was counted, from that moment, God has always been God, and he has been moving from that creation moment to new creation moment. This isn't an afterthought. This isn't a, oh, things didn't go right, better come up with plan B. Oh, didn't happen, man, I need plan C. These people are stiff-necked, hard to deal with. I need plan D. It's always been plan A, creation to new creation. When he created the world, he knew that one day he would stand at the end, Jesus in his flesh, stand at the end, crying out, I am making all things new. A place in which, if you read the context around these passages, you find that every tear is wiped away. Pain, death, mourning, crying, they are gone. They are no more. And God will be with us. We will be his people. He will be our God. And we will be with him. It's in this new world that that God's people will have access to the tree of life. And they will drink. They will be given drink from the river of life at no cost. And it will satisfy our souls forever. Just think about that. What does real contentment, the the deep desires of your heart to be fully satisfied, satiated, that you're just saturated through with the things that you want so that the things you want up here on the surface don't even seem to have any kind of power anymore? Creation will end in new creation. There's nothing that can stop it. There's nothing that can keep it from happening. Promises and prophecies will be fulfilled. Look at 21.6. I am making all things new. 
Behold, write it down. These, tr- these words are trustworthy and true. The idea here is, is you can trust him, right? He's emphasizing the trustworthiness, the truthfulness of what's about to be said. And he said to me, it is done. Now, literally in the Greek, it's plural. They are done. All that God has promised, all that he's prophesied will be brought to completion. This is his promise to his people. Now, one commentator uh, noted this, and I think it's helpful for us to realize that there's a lot of things happening in the storyline of the Bible, so I want to share it with you. He writes, although there is a general sense of echoing the triumphant cry of Jesus on the cross in John 19.30. Remember, I called it out even. Does that sound familiar? It is finished. One of the final words that Jesus says on the cross before he hangs his head, gives up his spirit, and dies. The vocabulary is different here and matches the Greek of the creation account. So the, the original Old Testament was written Hebrew and Aramaic, but later come along, people came along and they translated it into Greek. And so what he's pointing out is the Greek uh, Septuagint of the creation account in Genesis 1, it matches, this language matches that more precisely when God speaks the creation into existence and says at different points, and it was so. So just as an example, Genesis 1, 6 through 7, again, that verses aren't on the screen behind me, but you can go and look for yourself. Genesis 1, 6 through 7, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. It was done. And then at the end of creation, he sits down and rests because he's finished with the work of creation. Then the work of redemption, Jesus Christ from the cross calls out, it is finished. And at the end of all things, he says, it is done. It is so. It's exactly as I've always intended to be. I am here. I am finishing my work. The whole history of the Bible finding its culmination in this moment when all things are going to be made known. Promises and prophecies fulfilled with nothing left over. The whole history of the Bible being culminated, culminating in this one moment. They are done. That time that we step into eternity, that time where all, every tear is wiped away, all mourning and death are ended, to live in his presence forever and ever. And then finally, one third thought that is represented here is that judgment and justice will be served. He makes that plain. He makes that clear both in chapter 21 and in chapter 22. Judgment and justice will be served. In one sense, these words could be absolutely terrifying. Let's just read them again. Re- Revelation 21, pick it up in verse 6. It, it, it is done, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. I will give to the, from the spring of life, a spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's hopeful, right? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I don't know about you, but, man, I'm not really a murderer, not in the truest sense of the word, but I am an an idolater, have been. Continue to see those idols in my heart spring up all over the place. I don't make a practice of lying, but I, I definitely feel the temptation toward it, and I can't say I'm not a liar. In fact, there's a song my wife used to sing it when we, we were raising the boy when they were littler. Uh, we don't sing it so much to them anymore. Revelation, Revelation, 21-8, 21-8. 
Liars go to hell. Liars go to hell. Burn, burn, burn. Burn, burn, burn. They turned out okay. That's terrifying stuff. That's what it says, though. Right? In chapter 22, he, 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 he says again, this time in, uh, in, in verse 12, he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my rec- recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. Man, when I measure what I deserve versus what he can pay, it's terrifying. Well, we want to be careful here. I've heard people say it, something along the lines, well, he's going to repay people based on what they've done with Jesus. And I think that's true. I think there's truth to that. He's going to base his payment on what people have done with Jesus. And, and, and I agree, but I don't think it goes far enough. And I'll tell you why I don't think it goes far enough. Because the gospel isn't simply that God saved you so that when you, when you face him in heaven, that, or, or face him at the end of time and face judgment from him, that then he's going to welcome you into heaven and he's going to make you never sin again. The gospel is that he makes you alive today and able to live like it today. That doesn't mean that it comes without, that doesn't mean that we are perfect or anything like that. But the gospel is that we can actually begin to live like him now. In fact, as we celebrated baptism this morning, you heard the word said. We say them every time somebody's baptized. I, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with him at baptism. Raised to walk in the newness of life. He doesn't just save you as some external work. He transforms you from the inside out. He makes you a new creation. He gives you life. And so just let me illustrate that to you just real quickly from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I referenced them a minute ago, and you're going to see the influencers that are out there in the world, the people that are dead in them. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, right? That's the way you lived. You were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, the world, flesh, and the devil, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, if you know that passage, you know that the very next word is but. And those three letters carry so much power, so much emphasis. There's such a, such a sharp contrast coming. But God. Made you alive. And then he walks through how he saved you. And he comes down to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Now he sets clearly off. We are not working our way into heaven. Right? It's a gift. God's got to give it to you. He would even suggest that the faith that we express is given to us by God. But. We'd be foolish to stop there because there's more to the context. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. The Greek there is poema. Right? We're his work of art. We're his story being told. We're the expression of his glory. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. So at the beginning, we're walking in trespasses and sins. And at the end, because we've been saved, we've been given new works, good works, actual good things to do, that we would live in them, that we would express them, that we would do them, that we would obey them. If we've been saved by God's grace from sin and death, then we are also, the gospel tells us also, that we're able to begin living like it now. And that's why we call one another to obedience. We call one another to do the the good works that he set aside for us to do because there is a time coming where we will all stand in judgment. 
We will all face judgment. Every person will face judgment. And some will be judged apart from Christ, and someone will be judged in Christ. And our works that have been worked in Christ as a result of the gospel will stand and show that his transformation, that his work in us was true. That's the gospel. So when he comes and he pays us what we're, what we're due, when he, that, that, that word recompense is, is, is payment. When he, when he pays you the wage that you're due. You're not going to be do it. You're, it's not going to be due to you because you deserved it or earned it apart from Christ. But in Christ, you will live in such a way. You can live in such a way. That in Christ, hear me, brothers and sisters, in Christ, through Christ, because of the power of Christ at work in you, you have done good things according to his standard and not your own. But don't misunderstand. If your faith is not in Christ, then you've determined a way to God that God hasn't given us. And you will get everything you deserve. And that is a fearful thing. And it is right to quake at that reality. As you will be thrown into the lake of fire that burns without end. So brother... Sister, find rest in the God who is, who completes his work. The work he started in you, he will bring to completion. That's Philippians, Paul and Philippians. He will bring it to, com- to, to completion. Be certain of it. He is God, always has been, always will be. And for those that have never trusted in him, you will not escape this God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is coming. And he is mighty. You cannot stand against him. So hear this plea. Hear this call. Submit your life to him. Trust in him and him alone. Let's pray.